The views and opinions expressed by contributors on the Spoon River Gothic podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect the position of the host. Material heard on the Spoon River Gothic podcast is intended for adult listeners. This podcast deals with mature topics that may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. This is Spoon River Gothic, narrative of a double homicide. There is no hunting like the hunting of man, and those who have hunted men long enough and liked it never care for anything else thereafter. Ernest Hemingway That carnal tremble of the mortal coil, primal satisfaction, the kill clenched in the jaw, that building tension both relieved and taken upon to embrace the flesh of prey, the excitement felt when seized upon that which is challenging to clutch. A romance. That strange sensation of expectation mixed with fright as we become entrapped in the thrill of the hunt. But what is of that thrill of the chase? And is not every image that succeeds in suggesting something of that thrill as well a curiosity? When the regulator, which otherwise regulates predatory density, and just such predatory prey, contaminated with such wickedness, shall this evil suppress goodness by secondary poisoning? A twister of the mind, no doubt. But what of this? This fine line between good and evil, black and white, and the soul of gray. That delicate boundary between predator and prey, good and bad. Does not the Bible say, every person is created for a good purpose, but suffers from an evil heart? as a blessing can quickly become a curse. Does not a person's sense of morality lessen as one's power increases? While good apples weed out the bad, cannot one sole lousy apple spoil the bunch? And what is that difference between good for something and good in itself? Aren't we all children of God, born pure and good? And is it right to say there are no such people as good or bad? Only good and bad behaviors, after all. Is not good to sacrifice oneself to save another, while evil is to sacrifice others to save oneself? But what of the nature of behavior, that act of natural phenomena, but how one conducts oneself, especially toward others? That way in which an animal person acts in response to a particular situation or stimuli, that which rouses energy in someone, a spur or incentive? Does not desire originate from that interplay of stimulus and internal needs, resulting in relatively mindless behavior? But what of desire? Desires the hunger is the fire I breathe. Wanting to have, wishing to possess, to consume. He desires and constantly carries on desiring and enjoys the satisfaction of desire. It is said that when whereas animal was predestined to follow instinct, man, having lost his way, invented occupation. During his brief existence he had to choose a way of life, for the great majority obligations of occupations, which became a burden to him, chores, done out of necessity, not choice, until work stifled man by occupying his time that might be spent pleasurably. He thus found it essential to divert himself. He labored, therefore in hope of eventually winning his freedom by leaving his occupation and pursuing a life of happiness, a vocation common to all. Meanwhile, whenever man could rest from his work, he diverted himself in a limited number of enjoyable ways. Throughout universal history, the activity that usually made up the happiest vocation for all was hunting, hunting out of pure pleasure, 
But before hunting, one must learn how to hunt. First, decide on your preferred game. The game you choose to hunt will influence the methods you employ while hunting, the kind of weapon or trap you use, and where it will be best for you to pursue. Second, research effective hunting tools. You won't need an elephant gun to hunt a pheasant. Research the best weapon best suited for the species you have chosen to pursue. Thirdly, talk to someone with hunting experience, if not a father or an uncle. Ask amongst family, friends, neighbors, and like minds questions you have about hunting. You might say, I don't have much hunting experience, but I really like nature and I could benefit from the nutrients in venison. Could you tell me a little bit more about deer hunting? And don't forget your local library and Google. Fourthly, investigate state and local restrictions and regulations. Depending on where you live, how rural or urban the area is, and the local culture, there can be significant differences in the legal definitions of various kinds of game and the acceptable weapons you can use to hunt. Know the laws, jurisdiction, consequences, and sentencing guidelines. Fifthly, look into hunting tactics for your game. The proper approach will give you even more enjoyment from the sport by offering you the most reasonable chance for success on your hunt. Some common hunting tactics include hunting from blinds, tree stands, stalking, or driving prey from cover within a group, such as pursuing deer with hounds. A successful bird hunter must find a feeding area or watering hole. Waterways will suffice. Sure, small game like rabbits and squirrels may be tracked using dogs. Beagles are a favorite. But some smaller breeds are easier to trap. But again, check the rules and regulations. 6. Prepare your hunt. Put together a kit and choose your tactic. There will be different methods for hunting the game you choose as prey. Ambush or stalking, as mentioned. You must first research your mark to decide upon the most effective style. Practice your tactic and try exercising stalking. Wait in the shadows, behind a tree. Watch your prey, know your quarry. Observe how they behave. Go unseen but follow, get close. Close enough to make the kill, but wait, get it right. Next, choose a location. Your prey will likely have an ideal habitat. Here you will have a better chance of finding your game while you hunt. Research the perfect habitat of your prey. Paying attention to notes about migration and yearly changes in behavior. And find some locations near you where you can hunt your game. Become familiar with your weapon. You will need enough knockdown power for a quick and clean kill. But not so much as to do extensive damage to the meat. Give yourself the advantage of sight. But as mentioned, stay out of sight. Practice again and familiarize yourself with the terrain. Check the weather and gather your supplies. Understand time as a factor and begin at an appropriate hour. Enter the hunting grounds as quietly as possible. Observe your surroundings. Be mindful of your scent. Identify your target and be sure of your target. And go for a clean kill. And lastly, be prepared to track and dispatch a wounded animal. Now enjoy the capture of your prey, the thrill of the hunt, and after the kill, keep the antlers as a trophy or what have you, and relish in delicious meat. And when the adrenaline wears off and your belly is full, and you find yourself sleepy, exhausted, and ready to snooze, do not be surprised if you awake to an empty belly roaring and a sense of feeling down and out, now that the thrill is gone. But don't you worry, you can do it all over and over again. Once you have committed to hunting and want to make it a sport, it becomes a serial activity in your life. And what of Hemingway's poignant quote, there is no hunting like the hunting of man. And what better way to understand that complex psychology of the nature of hunting man than to take a brief look at the serial killer and their methods and those steps and stages of their own. 
be it a different game hunted, a different type of meat. Hunting is hunting, after all. It all begins with the aura phase. It happened before the first offense, and it's about what fantasies the person is having, planning out the idea in the head that is increasing in intensity about what the killer wants to satisfy. Becoming more antisocial as their fantasies increase and become violent, therefore sexual acts were drawn from childhood, and they may have medicated themselves with drinks and drugs. But eventually, one reaches a point where they have to act out those fantasies. Second, the trolling phase. When the killer searches for victims for prey, it involves looking for a location or a victim type that matches the person's fantasy. In their fantasy per se, women between the ages of 20 and 30 with blonde hair and blue eyes. Third, the wooing phase where the killer lures his victim gently without letting her know he is dangerous. Fourth, the capture phase, where the victim is entrapped. The killer's mask finally comes off. He reveals who he really is, locking up his victim or rendering her unconscious. Now the killer is sure to be in absolute control. Now he can do anything he wants to do with the victim with her. And it is important to note that torture, degradation, and rape shall often lead to murder. Also, some offenders may want to stay with the body after killing to engage in sexual activity, a sexual arousal called necrophilia. Step 5. A totem phase of its own. As the killer gathers mementos from his victims, or the victim's body parts in an attempt to hang on to that feeling of power, that control he had with trophies such as jewelry or toes. It is essential to be mindful of the fact that with killing is tremendous sexual gratification, one that takes place within the killer, and frequently they want to keep that in their memory bank, and they do so by taking these toes. Lastly, that rotten old depressive phase is after the kill the thrill is over the serial killer returns from his fantasy to reality, and depression is likely to set in. And this is why some of these offenders repeat, because only once they attain that behavior that matches their fantasy, they almost instantaneously become disheartened. An example of a kind of letdown, it wasn't as good as I thought it was, or it wasn't what I had hoped for, or I didn't use that mechanism, that object, the way I had wanted to, because I didn't have enough time. These negative ruminations often feed the subsequent preparation for the next behavioral act to occur, to meet one's fantasy further. And now, the time has come to face that lingering question in the back of my own mind. One that must be asked, what of that fine line between cop and killer? Both hunters, after all. That theory that what drives the personality of the prior may be the same for the latter. Yet they have simply chosen different roles and professions to call their own. And what of choosing and identifying the desired prey of the hunter-killer and those commonalities while police profile the said serial killer themselves? Recreational, hedonistic, or lust serial killers can be grouped by similar attributes. A recreational killer participates in lead-up activities that include the killing or torturing of animals and sadistic rape. The ultimate form of pleasure is to kill. Sexual acts with power and sexual control themes are performed before or after the victim's death. Mental and physical torture is an essential component of a repetitive ritual for those who are process-oriented. Searching for the perfect dramatic ending, the recreational killer cannot achieve the perfect fantasy and serial film ending. The serial killer's motivation is to improve the unfulfilled dream. He repeatedly kills strangers for recreation, hoping to strengthen the drama between episodes and finally achieve the perfect fantasy. The FBI classifies serial killers into two basic categories, organized and disorganized typologies, a third category, mixed typology, is less helpful to the investigators when profiling the offender in his crime scene 
The disorganized killer generally has a mental disorder and commits a delusional related homicide. The organized killer uses intelligent planning, cunning, and stealth. The organized killer's crime scene is pristine. The profiling of the victims of serial killers allows police investigators to anticipate the recreational killer's next move, warn potential victims, and seek their cooperation. Overall, the key to the successful investigation of serial killings is to anticipate the criminal mind of the predator, the killer's cycle of violence, and a thorough application of investigative tools. And what of the one-time killer, otherwise known as the murderer, or in the case of the double homicide of Donna and Justine Tompkins, the double murderer? Here, for a homicide investigation, we find five general steps of their own. First, document everything. Second, nail down the timeline. Third, follow every lead. Fourth, treat everything as evidence. And fifth, persevere. While these steps may sound rather rudimentary, profiling a culprit, rather, painting a portrait of the killer, is as much of an art as it is a science. Killers are the most frustrating and disturbing of all violent predators, but their crimes leave much to be profiled. When they kill, they are filling complex psychological needs. Sometimes they may steal when they kill, but I can tell you that homicide motivations are in their heads, not in their wallets. Because they kill for psychological reasons, many times, they leave a lot of clues for profilers. A lot of behavior is almost always present at a homicide crime scene. Many offenders want their crime scenes to look a certain way. They want a specific type of victim, and often, there is heavy fantasy involvement in how they kill. Thus, much of their personality is left at a crime scene. The basic tenet of profiling is that behavior reflects personality. With that in mind, there are three questions that a profiler has to ask when faced with a case. They are as follows. 1. What evidence is present at the scene? 2. What was the motive? 3. Who is the suspect? Though these questions seem simple, if you start to go through them, you will find many elements of forensic science, psychology, sociology, and criminal justice. What evidence is present at the scene? The first question is, what evidence is present? What happened? To start, a profiler receives a case file. Importantly, minus any pre-existing suspect information. This must be stressed because you never want to make a profile fit a suspect unconsciously. So note, never see anything about a suspect before one profiles a case. Only look at the behavior and forensics at the scene. And once the file is received, examine the evidence and ask what happened. Did the killer abduct the victim or sneak into her home? Was the victim bound and if so, with what? How did the perpetrator kill her? Did he leave her out in the open or did he hide the body? You want to see what the killer did before grabbing the victim. While he was with the victim and after he killed her. Behavioral or forensic evidence will introduce you to who committed the crime. What was the motive? Once you have established what happened, then you ask why it happened. Why did the offender break into a home in broad daylight? Why did he stab her over a hundred times? Why did he masturbate on her instead of simply raping her? You look at every little thing done before, during, and after the crime. Then you determine why it would have been done. To quote an example provided by an ex-FBI criminal profiler, a victim was found at her place of business, fully clothed but stabbed over a hundred times in the back. The murder weapon was one of opportunity. No evidence of forced injury was found. The victim was stabbed primarily in the back. However, she was also stabbed a few times in her chest. There was no evidence of a sexual assault or defensive wounds. The offender had covered her body with a blanket after killing her. There was a partially smudged palm print found at the scene. 
there was a strand of brown hair mixed in with blood. However, no DNA, fingerprints, shoe prints, or fibers existed to be found. The victim was a store manager who had a strong mind for business. She was a flirt in her late 20s and enjoyed being treated to expensive gifts from those she dated. Additionally, she was not seeing anyone exclusively at the time of the murder. Drugs and alcohol were a part of her life. She dabbled in cocaine and drank quite a bit on the weekends. However, money was not an issue as she had a lot of savings and few debts. So you ask, why would someone come into a place of business, seek her out, and do this to her? It appeared that this was an explosive individual who felt the victim had stabbed him in the back. When you see a victim who primarily has injury to the back without rape or robbery, it usually points to a revenge murder. Who is the suspect? This suspect would have had a prior relationship with her, which would have been positive at one point. I said this because the killer showed some remorse by covering her, and there was no attempt to rape the victim. The offender would have been in his early to mid-twenties due to the victim's age, and the evidence pointing to a man without prior homicide experience. This means he would have been younger rather than older. You see rage and remorse in this scene. This is an explosive act by someone who feels he was pushed to the brink by the victim. Again, you had no robbery. You had no forced entry. You had no sexual component. What you did have was a weapon of opportunity versus a weapon brought to the scene. The offender grabbed a pair of scissors from her desk to kill her, and he took them with him after the crime. So this points to a man who knew the victim had a positive relationship with her that had gone bad, was young and inexperienced in crime, and due to the type of murder, would have been someone with anger management issues. Because he would have known the victim and had such a grudge, this is the type of perpetrator who would have had difficulty keeping his feelings secret. Thus people would know him and know his anger toward the victim. It turned out the perpetrator was a man she had recently dated. However, she had broken the relationship off and wanted nothing to do with him. This hurt him terribly because for years, they had been close friends before dating. People in her office knew him because he kept coming to the office to convince her to take him back. He was in his early 20s and had no criminal record. The sad fact was that he was so emotionally invested in the relationship that he felt she stabbed him in the back. In their presence, he had uttered this phrase to those who were friends to him and her. He had gone to the office after hours, and she was working late in an attempt to get her to take him back. She told him to get out, and that she wanted nothing to do with him. In a rage, he grabbed her scissors and began stabbing her. After he was done, he covered her body with a blanket she kept in her office. He said he couldn't stand to look at what he had done. He took the scissors with him and hid them at his home. So once more, in the basics of profiling, remember to ask these three questions. 1. What evidence is present at the scene? 2. What was the motive? 3. Who is the suspect? If you can answer these questions, you will begin to get a portrait of the most likely killer. As investigators on the Tompkins case evolved six months after the double homicide, what catches my attention is that investigative efforts had quickly commenced towards painting a portrait of the prime suspect, Donnie Bull, primarily based on first and second hand accounts of his past and sorts, running the string forward from that undoubtedly disturbed past of Donnie's to the date of January 3rd, 1993. Rather than from the burnt-out shell of the apartment at 365 South 1st Avenue, where the bodies of mother and daughter were discovered on a sofa bed in the heart of the arson scene toward the suspect, in which the evidence gathered at the scene and what other invaluable facts had been obtained 
from that point of time and location and run that string where it might, based on that guiding lead of a profile generated from those intact findings. To follow the logic of Sherlock Holmes, it is a capital mistake to theorize before one has data. Insensibly, one begins to twist facts to suit theories, instead of theories to suit facts. Rather, when you have eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. But let us take a step back to that first line of the first quote. It is a capital mistake to theorize before one has data. So what of this missing data? Based on my summation of the case files, through my own reductive reasoning, I would hypothesize a criminal, or rather a killer profile, derived from the time, location, scene, methods, and victimology of the killings. In the case of this investigation, what I perceive as mentioned, six months in, is a profile being constructed on Donnie to suit the crime, rather than creating a profile based on the killing itself, and through the act of deductive reasoning, finding the match for that profile amongst the population. The opposite of deductive thinking, inductive reasoning. A method of drawing conclusions by going from the specific to the general. It's usually contrasted with deductive reasoning, where you proceed from general information to particular conclusions. Inductive reasoning is also called inductive logic or bottom-up reasoning. In a later chapter, ladies and gentlemen, we will have the opportunity to create our own killer profile through deductive reasoning alone. But for now, the next step in the course of the investigation is to follow Illinois State Police Special Agent Kenneth Kedzer as he arrived at the home of Richard Hamilton in the late afternoon during the last week of July to perform some deductive reasoning based on information gathered from Donnie Bull. Agent Kedzer had stopped by to speak with Mr. Hamilton about whether he had seen anyone with vehicle problems outside of his residence on the morning of January 13, 1993. Mr. Hamilton stated he did not recall seeing anyone parked outside of his house with car problems that morning, adding that he typically leaves his house at 7.05 a.m. Mr. Hamilton stated that he is usually outside for 5 to 10 minutes before his carpool had arrived. Hamilton said he usually looked around his house and picked up garbage and that sort of thing, that may be lying about before going to work. He also said that his carpool usually arrived at 7.15, and that he most likely would have noticed someone was broken down outside, because he would have been waiting outside for his ride. He did say that he, in fact, remembered that morning of January the 13th, because he recalled discussing the fire at the Tompkins residence with the people he carpools to work with, as his house is just adjacently behind Donna Tompkins' apartment. Next, Special Agent Kedzer made his way to the home of the Price family. And settling in, Agent Kedzer followed up with Iona, asking her if she had worked at the Elks on January 10th, 1993, for the Kmart Christmas party. And Iona stated that she and Donna had both worked at the Elks that night. Iona said both would have arrived at the Elks between 5 and 5.30 p.m. because steaks would have been served that night. Iona said she did not know precisely how long they would have worked that night, but thought that she and Donna could have been there until 1.30 to 2 a.m. the following morning. Iona then suggested that Donna may have had to leave early so that Donna's babysitter could get home. She also advised that she did not recall if she had had a conversation with Donna about what Donna had been doing earlier that day. Iona then caught the investigator's attention as she stated that her husband, Mike Price, had recently received a letter from Donnie Bull. Donnie had noted in the letter that he had had intercourse with Donna several times. But Iona said neither she nor her husband Mike believed Donnie when asked. She added that Donna would have said something to her if Donna was having sex with Donnie. The interview then concluded, but Agent Kedzer eventually returned to the Price residence to meet with Mike and gathered the letter that had been written to him from Donnie Bull, who sat in jail for his recent assault conviction. As the agent read the letter, 
Mike pointed out that Donnie stated that he was with Donna Tompkins the weekend before her death. At this point, the investigation, which had temporarily shrugged off the tunnel vision that had been taking shape, had slightly shifted back into a course of inductive reasoning, conscious or not, as further evaluation of Donnie's character was further sought from his friend, Russell Stufflebeam. It is important to note that while gathering data to paint a picture of a suspect is not in terms inductive alone, what potentially makes it such is my suspicion that a criminal profile had never been constructed based on the time, place, scene, victimology, and method alone in which to compare the profile put together on Donnie. It is hard to say whether it was a lack of evidence or not, but we must not forsake the common fact, ladies and gentlemen. The nothing speaks louder of the character of a killer than the scene of his act, as the scene is in itself more often than not an extraordinarily well-depicted accurate fingerprint of the perpetrator. Without such a profile, Agent Kedzer proceeded to allow Donnie's friend to paint a picture of the troubled man, whether conscious, intentionally or not, as Agent Kedzer gathered evidence on Donnie's activities, whereabouts, etc., what the agent was also doing, or rather what was occurring in his mind, and thus in the murder book, was a construction of Donnie as a potential killer, the potential killer. With no pre-existing criminal profile of which to match, on current file to my knowledge, this process was akin to taking the fingerprints of the suspect and saying they matched the fingerprint that would have been left at the crime scene, be it no fingerprint had, in fact, ever been left at the crime scene. Or more accurately, it may be wise to use the analogy, taking Donnie's portrait and then stating that anyone who might leave a crime scene in this manner would look like this guy over here. This face. This is the face of a killer, particularly the face of the killer. Again, it is inductive. Painting a portrait to fit the scene, shaping the theory to fit the facts. While doing so, Agent Kedzer joined up with Canton Police Detective Marty Boten, and the two met up with Russell Stufflebeam at his home on the 2nd of August at 2.14 p.m. Russell told the agents that six or seven weeks ago, he had also received a letter from Donnie Bull, thanking him for picking up his VW Beetle from his girlfriend Rochelle Hillmeyer's home. Russell stated that he had previously written Donnie a letter to tell him that he had picked up the bug because Russell had heard that Donnie wanted him to remove it from Rochelle's home. But he said that he no longer had possession of Donnie's letter. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the letter I had presented to you at the beginning of episode 42. Also, no, this letter had not accompanied the case file when we had obtained it. In fact, it was provided to us by Donnie's family, and they had received it from Donnie's clemency lawyer in the late 90s or early 2000s. How Donnie's lawyer obtained this letter is not exactly clear. But what is clear is that Russell stated that he did not remember if Donnie had said anything about Don in the letter he had written from jail. Special Agent Kedzer asked Russell if Donnie ever talked or wrote about having sex with Donna Tompkins. Russell said that the letter Donnie wrote would have been the only time Donnie had written about having sex with Donna, but he could not recall, adding that Donna had never spoken to him of having sex with Donna in the past. I can tell you, ladies and gentlemen, that the letter, in fact, had not spoken of Donnie having sex with Donna. What the letter had stated was, Now the reason I haven't written was that I was informed that for every one that I did write to from the Fulton County Jail, the cops would go and question them about what was in my letters, and question them about me and the bullshit they were trying to push off on me. Well, I guess since I quit writing to people, the cops started leaving people alone. But I am not really sure of that because, as I said, I wasn't writing, so no one was writing to me letting me know what was going on. But tonight, I just said the hell with them cops, because I am not going to let them try and hold something over my head that I had no part in. I had nothing to do with any fire or about any kind of people dying, so the cops can kiss my ass. And what is evident is that no, the cops had not stopped questioning his friends and family 
about what was in his letters, and nor had they, in the words of Donnie, stopped questioning them about me and that bullshit they were trying to push off on me. And unbeknownst to him, only when his portrait was complete would they cease. In mid-September, the lead detective on the case, Sergeant David Ayers, typed up a supplemental case report reflecting the results of an interview conducted with Ronald D. Henderson of Canton, Illinois. This interview was conducted at the Canton Police Department on 9-21-1993 at 16-20 hours, and no other officers were present. Henderson stated that Donnie Bull used to live with him, but had moved out sometime in July 1993. I find this date of July 93 to be a typo, seeing that Donnie had not already been locked up for a matter of months by July, but had been convicted of criminal assault and was incarcerated. However, the report continued. Bull had been working at Excel, but had quit paying his rent and was asked to leave. Henderson had observed Bull throw Ginny Brown around in a local bar. Bull had gotten into an argument and became physically aggressive and somewhat violent with her. Henderson did not recall where or when this altercation took place. The responding officer inquired if Bull liked to burn things or start fires, and was advised that the Henderson home had experienced a minor fire when Bull resided there. Henderson felt it had been a smoldering mattress, but Bull claimed it was a light socket, electrical failure. An alarm clock was sitting on a cardboard box next to the bed, and flames had troubled up in the wall. Henderson also stated that Bull studied up on rape. This opinion was formed by topics Bull talked about, read, and watched on television. During the time Bull was getting accused of raping his wife, Henderson felt that Bull was almost setting up the residence for police to investigate. Henderson said he was left a note by Bull, giving him the following directions. He was told not to empty the ashtrays and not to move a certain towel or other objects he had placed out for detection. Henderson felt the note may have included more, but he could not recall anything else at the time. Henderson stated that he now believed that Bull had raped his wife and wondered if Rochelle's daughters were in danger while Bull was living there. Henderson also believed that Bull could have easily been involved with the Tompkins murders. Henderson didn't think their deaths would bother Bull at all. Reporting Officer, Signed, Sergeant David L. Ayers. After seeing mention of the Excel meat packaging plant in the case files various times, Canton Police Detective Marty Boten thought it would be relevant to call up the personnel department at the corporate headquarters. And while doing so, he spoke with Miss Sandy Utter over the phone. Detective Bowden asked Miss Utter if he could obtain work records of ex-employee Donald R. Bull. Miss Utter stated she would first have to check with the personnel manager before giving the detective any information on Donnie. A while later, Miss Utter called Detective Bowden back, informing him that she had checked with the personnel manager and that it was, in fact, okay to provide the detective with Donnie Bull's work record. The facts then came through at the Canton Police Department from Excel with the appointment record. A few days later, Detective Boten called up Miss Utter again to determine how many days Donnie Bull had been absent from his job. Miss Utter stated that Donnie was hired on January 13, 1992. A synchronistic date, indeed, I might add. And that he continued to work until he quit on September 14, 1992. During that time, she said, Donnie had missed a lot of workdays due to illness. As the detective reviewed the record, he noted that Donnie missed March 3rd and 4th due to illness, and that during the same month, Donnie missed work from March 24th through March 31st, 1992. During the month of April, Donnie missed from the 1st until the 4th. The month of May, he missed work on the 18th. The month of June, Donnie missed the 5th and 6th. July, the 10th until the 31st. August, from the 1st until the 29th. And by September, 
Donnie had missed the first two weeks of that month and then quit on the 14th. Putting the final touches on Donnie's portrait, Special Agent Kedzer again made his way to the Hillmeyer residence for yet another follow-up interview with Rochelle. It was late December by now. Christmas had come and gone, and there was about an hour of daylight left in the day when the agent sat down with Rochelle. He started things off by stating that, first off he needed to clarify some information from the previous interviews. Agent Kedzer then asked Rochelle if her daughter had received a necklace from Donnie Bull, and Rochelle responded saying that no, her daughter had not received a necklace from Donnie, but that, in fact, Donnie had given her herself a necklace. A necklace on Christmas Day, 1992. She said that Donnie had told her that he had purchased the necklace at a jewelry store. But that no, she said when asked. Donnie had not given her a ring or any rings for that matter for Christmas of 92. Agent Kedzer then asked Rochelle if she had changed the tires on her car, a brown 1975 Chevrolet, since the fire at the Tompkins residence. Rochelle said that earlier the day of the fire, or the day after the fire, Donnie had taken her car to Bill's Phillips 66 service station on Locust Street in Canton. She said that Donnie had four new tires put on the vehicle for a cost of $40 each. Rochelle stated that she knew that Donnie had factually replaced all four tires because Donnie had taken her outside and showed her the new tires on the car after he had had them changed. Rochelle said that she had not had the tires patched since Donnie had changed them, and when asked, that she only had one spare tire now. She said it was not a very good one, and that she did not know if it was the exact spare tire Donnie had placed on the car the day of the fire. Agent Kedzer returned to Rochelle's the following day to collect a gold necklace and pendant, which Rochelle claimed she had received from Donnie on Christmas of 92. Agent Kedzer transferred the necklace and pendant to Canton Police Detective Marty Bowden. That day, Agent Kedzer had also photographed Rochelle's brown 1975 Chevrolet. And the following day, New Year's Eve to be exact, he sent the film via U.S. mail to the Illinois State Police Photographic Services for processing. Holiday season over, January 5th, 1994. Agent Kedzer again visited Rochelle at 9.23 a.m. to inquire if Rochelle knew where Donnie had been on the evenings of January 8th, 9th, 10th, and 11th, one year prior, which would have been a Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday. A question, in my opinion, which should have been asked, well, one year earlier. Rochelle said, of course that she does not recall at all where Donnie had been on those evenings. But she did say that he would have been working during that week and on Saturday the 9th as well. Rochelle noted that Donnie would typically come home after work, but occasionally would go over to David Nell's house. She said Donnie would usually be home before midnight if he went out. And then on Sundays, Donnie would often go up to the suburban lounge, which would have been the 10th. But again, of course, one year later, Rochelle was unsure if he had gone to the tavern that night or not. Six days later, and just two days before the one-year anniversary of the fire, the fire that consumed the bodies of Donna and Justine Tompkins, Agent Kedzer and Detective Bowton met with Rochelle Hillmeyer's mother, Jacqueline J. Day, at the Canton Police Department for a follow-up interview at 9.10 a.m. Jacqueline told the officers that her daughter Rochelle was in fact her daughter, she then stated that her husband, Carl Day, was the actual owner of the brown 1975 Chevrolet that Rochelle drove. Jacqueline added that there had been an ongoing argument between herself and Rochelle over Donnie being allowed to drive the vehicle. Jacqueline told the officers that at around 7.30 a.m. on January 13, 1993, 
She had dropped her husband off at a co-worker's house in Canton. She said she then traveled northbound on South 2nd Avenue, past Rochelle's home, and noticed that Rochelle's car was not parked at her residence. Jacqueline said she turned west on Hickory Street and proceeded to Main Street. Jacqueline then said she turned north on Main and proceeded to Wareco Gas Station where she purchased gas. Jacqueline told officers that it was her regular routine to cut through the alley on the northern perimeter of the Wareco Station and head east to First Avenue so that she could return to Rochelle's house. She said that when she drove through the alley, she observed Rochelle's car parked at the former Solwadell milk plant and that the car was facing east and was on the west side of the milk plant. Okay, wait. Slam on the brakes, ladies and gentlemen of the jury. Where do I begin? Well, for one, the location of the alley is, well, more easily stated. At First Avenue, the alley running parallel to a set of tracks jogs to the opposite side of the tracks. And if one were to continue going straight without making that jog, you'd end up driving directly into Donna Tompkins' yard, coming to a stop directly outside of her door. And the Solodell milk plant sat there right on the corner. Jacqueline said that when she drove through the alley, she observed Rochelle's car parked at the former milk plant, that the car was facing east and was on the west side of the milk plant. The sole issue with this statement is that it was literally the polar opposite of her last statement made to the police. At this time, ladies and gentlemen, let us take a step back to that day of March 28, 1993, when Jacqueline Day said multiple times when asked on record that no, she had not seen the brown 1975 Chevrolet anywhere. I quote Jacqueline as saying, I usually pick up my grandchildren from Rochelle's just before 8 a.m. on school days. Well, one kid has to be at the bus stop by 8, and then I drive the other to the high school. I remember clearly the day of the 13th, because after I delivered the kids, I went to Brown Snappy Service for coffee and then to the bank. After that, I returned to visit with my daughter. I was pretty angry with her because her car was gone. I pay for it, so I don't like anyone using it but her. After a short while, Donnie returned in the car and entered the house. As soon as he walked in, he told us there was a big house on first that was on fire, that there was a lot of smoke coming from it. Then we all stepped outside and could hear sirens from the emergency vehicles. And Donnie told us that he had seen a fire truck and an ambulance on his way home. Miss Day was asked by detectives if she happened to drive past Bork's scrapyard taking the kids to school that morning. She answered, No, but I did go through the intersection of 2nd and Oak each way. And when asked, Had you seen your daughter's car anywhere on the side of the road? Jacqueline responded, No. I did not see it anywhere around there. And I would have. I had my eyes out. Seeing Donnie was out in it somewhere. But no. I did not see it anywhere. Now, a year later, Jacqueline had entirely changed her story concerning seeing the car parked near Donna's. Not only that, but she went on to detail the encounter, saying that she went so far as to park her car, exit her car, approach the brown Chevy, and take a good peek inside, but that she did not see anything or anyone inside the car, not Donnie sleeping, nothing, no one, nowhere. Jacqueline also stated that she checked out the tires really well, and no, they were not flat at all, no apparent damage to the tires, nor anywhere on the car. When asked precisely what time this had occurred, at what time she had been virtually standing just outside Donna's residence by the vehicle, which had been abandoned on the side of the icy road without a living soul around, she said it would have been around 7.30 and 7.45 a.m., approximately one hour before she had previously stated she was at her daughter's residence as Donnie had arrived, which I might add, both her granddaughters claimed she had not been, not until a while after Donnie had arrived. And additionally, I might add, 7.30, 7.45 is 15 to 30 minutes before the bank opens. Regardless, at this time, Donnie arrived home. Neither had Jacqueline questioned Donnie about why the car had been parked by the milk plant, nor had she mentioned anything to Rochelle, and later, nor has she told police. Not until now, one year later. Jacqueline then went on to tell the two officers. She then went back to Rochelle's, and after a while, which according to her first statement as mentioned, would have been nearly an hour later, Donnie came pulling into the drive. 
stating that there was a fire, smoke, and sirens at a gray house by the railroad tracks. Jacqueline then said that she had a friend who lived in a gray house near the railroad tracks. So she went to that area of the fire to check on her friend. And she noted to officers that the brown 1975 Chevrolet was at that time parked in Rochelle's driveway when she had departed. But what Jacqueline had not mentioned to officers was whether she had not only thought it odd that the gray house of fire near the tracks was on the exact corner where she had just parked her car, exited her car, and checked out the tires on her daughter's car. Nor had she mentioned this peculiarity to Rochelle, nor questioned Donnie, as to why exactly he had been at that location of the supposed fire just one hour earlier. Jacqueline then said that when she saw that it was, in fact, not her friend's house that was burning, she turned west back past the milk plant and down the same alley to the Werco station where she had earlier gotten gas, stating, No, the brown 1975 Chevrolet was no longer parked by the milk plant. Well, of course. She had just stated it was firmly parked in her daughter's driveway when she had exited the house to come check to be sure it was not her friend's home that was burning. Luckily for Jacqueline, it was only the home of Donna Tompkins and her three-year-old daughter Justine. Finally, when asked, Jacqueline stated that she had not previously provided this information to police because she did not realize the significance of Rochelle's car being parked near the Tompkins residence. And the interview concluded at 9.51 in the a.m. Possibly giving these contradictory statements, detectives thought it might be a helpful approach to take a step back a moment and try out some deductive reasoning for a change, something that had been lacking in the investigation for a good three quarters of a year, ever since the passion project of painting Donnie's portrait had begun. But now, possibly given the potential unreliability of certain witness accounts, upon the process of constructing this image of Donnie as the perp, Canton Police Detective Marty Boten, for whatever reason, thought it wise to take that step back, get a fresh look, possibly a fresh breath of chill winter air, or perhaps, seeing the temperature was a frigid 20 degrees, with an 18 mile per hour wind chill gusting out of the west-northwest, maybe Detective Boten thought it might be better to stay in the warmth of his office, given that the thermometer was posed to drop. But given the special meaning of the day, January 13th, 1994, exactly one year to the date of the death of Donna and her daughter, the detective decided to take a fresh look at the case in her honor, possibly. Regardless, he dialed up Rose Montoya at 10.20 a.m. that brisk Thursday morning. The call was about a Sunday, Sunday the 10th, 1993. Seeing Donna was a lifelong and devout Italian Catholic Detective Bowden asked Rose what he had on his mind, whether she had remembered seeing Donna and Justine on that Sunday before the fire. Rose said that yes, she did attend St. Mary's Catholic Church regularly, and yes, she did recall seeing both Donna and Justine on that Sunday at around 10.30 that morning. She then mentioned that she remembered that Justine had been crying and being somewhat cranky, and that she had spoken to Justine briefly after the church service. Rose told the detective that she had asked Justine if she wanted to go up to the front of the church and see the baby Jesus, but that Justine, being cranky, said no, but that she wanted her mother to take her to the front of the church to see the baby Jesus in his cradle, and that they were gone as quickly as they had arrived by 11.15 a.m. Detective Bowden, embracing this of his own investigation into the death of mother and daughter, thought to try one more time to put one last oomph into eliminating the impossible in order to determine what possibilities might remain. He met one final time with Donna's boyfriend at the time of her death 
Mr. Rod Franciscovich. Lead Detective Sergeant Ayers joined the interview session at 11.39 a.m. and the officer asked Rod if he believed he and Donna had been close enough that they were absolutely not dating any other people. Rod responded by saying that he was confident Donna was not seeing anyone else and that they were very close and even becoming closer as time passed. The only person she mentioned, he said, that was showing any interest in her was Terry Haynes, and that was right when we first started dating, and she promised me that she would tell me if Terry tried to get in touch with her again. We know from past episodes that obviously she had not, because she did have contact with Terry quite a few times. She even worked with him. He went on to say outright, I would know if Donna was seeing anyone else besides me. I would have known about it. What about casual sex? asked Sergeant Ayers. No, I would have known about it, Rod said. He was adamant. And he spoke up, saying, She was not seeing anyone else. I know it for a fact. He was then asked about the Cursillo retreat Donna had gone on, and if possibly she may have met someone there. And Rod said, No, if anything, it had really strengthened our relationship. Rod said when asked that he and Donna would have had sex most times that they saw one another. And when asked about protection, Rod said, Sometimes I'd wear a condom, but not always. And when did you last have sex with Donna before her passing, asked Sergeant Ayers. It would have been that Saturday night at my house, the weekend before the fire. I must note that when Rod was first interviewed by police, he had claimed his final sexual interaction with Donna had been, quote, well, Thursday night, January 7th. January 7th, asked Agent Ketzer, back during that initial interview. Yes, the 7th, said Rod. I came home from work around 10.45 that night. Donna had called me up earlier at work, and we talked a bit. But I hung up on her because of a customer. What did you do when she got home from work, asked the Tokta Boatman, during that initial interview. I got cleaned up at 8, and then I went over to her house around 1.30. A.M., asked Agent Ketzer. Yes. Were you too intimate that night? asked Detective Boatman. Yes, we made love. Did you use any type of contraceptive while you had intercourse? Donna used spermicide. And then what happened after you were intimate? Donna had to be at work early the next morning, he said, so we went to bed. However, during a follow-up interview just a week or so later, as Investigator Boatman asked Rod when the last time he had had a sexual encounter with Donna was, Rod stated boldly, First, I need to clarify a mistake I made in the previous interview. I had previously said that the last time we had sex, me and Donna, was on Saturday the 9th. But we actually had sex on Thursday the 7th, and I mistook Monday night and Tuesday night for Saturday. We actually had sex on the night of the 11th and the morning of the 12th. You see on Monday, the 11th, Donna called me at work and invited me to come over the night when I got off. We usually closed around 9pm, and I usually left Peoria around 10 or 10.15, and I got home around 11 on Monday night, got something to eat, cleaned up, took a shower, and then headed over to Donna's place about 1.30 in the morning. Which would have been the 12th, asked Detective Boten, rather confused. Correct, said Rod. But now, a year later, Rod was claiming that their final sexual encounter was on Saturday, the 9th of January. Rod went on to tell the investigators that Donna had stayed at his house until the early morning hour on Sunday, but that he thought that she had left around 5 a.m. in order to be back at her apartment before her husband, John Tompkins, dropped Justine off early, so he could return to do chores on the farm. Sergeant Ayers asked Rod to describe his sexual interaction with Donna more accurately. Ayers asked Rod to go into detail describing their sexual foreplay leading up to their having intercourse. Rod said that they would usually start out talking for a while, then they would start kissing and rubbing each other, and then it would eventually lead up to vaginal or oral sex being done on both parties. He then stated that he would use condoms, but that Donna decided to start using a spermicide and that he thought it was a gel rather than a foam when asked. He then mentioned that actually, he can now recall that on January 12th, yes in fact it was January 12th, I had gone to Donna's around 12.30am, somewhere between 12.30 and 1 in the morning. Let me pause there. The one consistency in Rod's statements are that he would go to Donna's between midnight and 1 in the morning. This is exactly the time in which it was believed Donna's killer arrived at her home. Okay, continuing on. He said he had let himself into the apartment using a key that she had given him 
and that she was already in bed on a pull-out couch in the front room. When asked to detail his arrival, Rod said, they talked for a while in bed together. They started kissing, rubbing each other. Then he performed oral sex on her for some time. He said that Donovan got up from the bed and went to the bathroom, inserted some spermicide, and returned to the front room. How do you know Donna applied spermicide? Did she tell you? asked Sergeant Ayers. And Rod replied that he had noticed that he had felt a gel substance as he placed his penis into her vagina, adding, I guess I just assume that is why she got up and went to the bathroom. And when we were having sex, it felt slick, I guess. Slicker than usual. More than usual, I would say. He then mentioned that he thought that Donna had just purchased spermicide recently because they had an accident one time. Rod went on to explain that they had had sex on one occasion in which he accidentally ejaculated inside of her vagina. And she got really upset, he said. She didn't want to have another child. Donna was very adamant about that. She did not want to get pregnant. One would think this would be an opportune time to ask Rod how he felt about Donna not wanting to have another child, given his belief that their relationship was evolving and that they were getting closer and closer as time went by. Still, the question was unfortunately forsaken, and Rod continued on to say that they had sex for several minutes, but that he did not ejaculate inside of her this time, but that she did perform oral sex on him until he did eventually ejaculate inside of her mouth. And then we went to sleep, he said. Do you recall if Donna went to the bathroom again after you finished? I don't. Was it uncommon for Donna to go to the bathroom after? No, not really. Not to wash up, bathe, shower? No, not usually. When asked once more about the couple potentially seeing others on the side, Rod responded, Look, we had an understanding. We made a commitment that we were going to only be with each other and no one else. And how would you have felt if you had found out that Donna, in fact, was seeing someone else on the side? That Donna was, in fact, sleeping with someone else? How would you have responded? Angrily? Violently? That question was never asked. Rod said that Donna came over to his house on Sunday the 10th of January, around 11.30 or 12, just after church, and that she brought her daughter Justine along. She left earlier that day, didn't stay long. She had to work a party at the Elks that night, he said. Are you aware if Donna would occasionally give anyone a ride home after her shift? He was asked. Not that I know of, he said. And back to the spermicide. Sergeant Ayers asked Rod again how he knew that Donna used spermicide, besides a slick sensation. And Rod said it was because he saw it in the bathroom medicine cabinet on the morning of the 12th as he was getting cleaned up that morning. Would Donna carry spermicide in her purse? I don't think so, not that I know of. Does she or you keep any spermicide at your home for when she sleeps over? No, I don't. Rod was then asked by Detective Bowden if Donna kept the same telephone number when she moved to her current address. And he stated that he thought she had because he did not remember having to learn a new number. He also said that Donna had an answering machine that usually came on after four rings with a prepared message. This is the same machine that Trust Officer David Haynes stated to police on record that he believed might have set off some kind of booby trap when he had called to check on her, his secretary, early that morning of the 13th, which might have started the fire. The fire he had discovered between 9.15 and 9.30 a.m. Detective Bowden went on to say, If there's anything else that comes to mind, Rod, please do not hesitate to get in touch with one of us. Sliding Rod two sets of business cards across the table in the now stuffy interview room. Yeah, sure, said Rod, and the interview concluded. Patience is almost always the key to any successful hunt. When hunting, it is important to realize that you haven't closed the deal until the prey is dead at your feet. what of desire? He that can have patience can have what he will. Benjamin Franklin I'm Corey Zimmerman, and this is Spoon River Gothic.
was born by the roadside in a broken down carriage came into life on the run found on the doorstep of a nearby orphanage no Gothic is a production of Lone Bird Media in association with CZ Studio and Radio Verite. The show is produced by August Olson, editing, directing, and producing by Corey Zimmerman, audio mastering and engineering by E. Mastered. Research is done by Anne Marie Cannon, Chelsea Mesa, and me, Jinra Illustrisimo. Spoon River Gothic is written and hosted by Corey Zimmerman. You can follow the show at czstudio.works and read the blog at spoonrivergothic.com. Show some love by leaving us a rating or review on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And stay tuned for the next episode as we dive deeper into the Donald Bull case. Thank you for listening. This is Spoon River Gothic, narrative of a double homicide. <laughs>